Welcome to Startup Hacks, a We Global Studios podcast. We explore the stories and secret strategies that women entrepreneurs use to save time and money when bootstrapping and building their businesses. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and today I'm so excited to welcome to the show the founder and CEO of Elevate My Brand and Fabric VC, Laurel Mintz. With a JD and an MBA from Rutgers University, Laurel's unique background prepared her for a successful career as a trailblazing entrepreneur. Founder of both the award-winning and highly sought-after Los Angeles-based marketing agency, Elevate My Brand, as well as now the founder of Fabric Venture Capital, a firm whose ESG fund is on a mission to weave together diverse, underrepresented founders with the funding they deserve and the critical marketing strategy they need to ensure success. Welcome, Laurel. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much for being on our show. I wanted to jump in and talk a little bit at the top of the show about your background and your legal and business degrees that you achieved early on. And I was wondering, did you think that one day you'd be running not one, but two companies? And how did it all, how did it all begin? Uh, what went wrong? No, I'm just kidding. You know, I always, I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer ever since I was five years old. My, uh, you know, your parents' friends would ask you what you want to be when you grow up. And most people would say, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a ballerina and astronaut. I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Everyone was like, "Uh uh-oh, watch out for this kid. And then, you know, I got to law school. And uh, after my first year, I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, It was combative. And it was, if I have this piece, you don't have a piece. And it was just very, um, you know, unsatisfying. It was clearly misaligned with my, as you would say, my founder DNA, right? And so I went to the dean of the school and I was like, I think I'm done here. I don't want to do this anymore. This is not, these are not my people. And she recommended and suggested that I try the MBA program. And she said, it sounds like that's what you're looking for. It's team building and problem solving and all of the the things the law program wasn't. And she was totally and absolutely right. I still went and got the law degree and passed the bar and practiced for a short while. But, you know, it's funny. The universe has a way of telling you what your path is. And after a year of practicing, my dad got sick. He's healthy now, so everyone could knock on wood to keep him healthy. I ended up having to step in and run his company at 26. So I was a CEO since 26. And then the rest of the kind of companies started from there because I realized I was an entrepreneur and I could never go back. And just out of curiosity, what kind of company were you running? That was a, it was a furniture company called Bassett Furniture, which um, is a huge national brand that he, he had been an import and export for years and years. And then this was his corporate uh, foray. So took over those companies. He was the West Coast president for that company. Um, and I'll tell you what, it was a school of hard knocks. It was uh, very, very challenging. I was the youngest person in the entire company, not to mention the youngest woman running a staff of 60 Uh, While my dad uh, was dying, he had stage four, and we did not know he was going to survive. So that was probably the most challenging time of my whole life. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, I'm glad your dad pulled out of that horrible health scare. And so share with us, at at what point did you think, okay, I think I'm going to launch a marketing company now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when he stepped back in, 
I went back after those law firm jobs and was getting these incredible six-figure offers that should have made anyone deliriously happy. And they made me viscerally and physically nauseous. It was so clear. Like, it, you know, you talk about DNA all the time, but it's also about like feeling into your body and really listening to your gut reaction, especially as women, we have such a strong gut. And every ounce of my being was like, this is just not your path anymore. And so after a couple of those offers, I kind of had to stop myself and say, okay, this is clearly not working. What, what am I going to do here? Like what, how do I pivot and figure out what the heck I'm supposed to be doing with my life? And as you well know, I am a schmoozer, a go-go. And so mm-hmm. I ended up uh, being introduced to a couple of entrepreneurs, one of whom was a very famous makeup artist at the time, celebrity makeup artist. She was raising $5 million to launch her first cosmetic line. And she needed a business plan and a marketing model to do that. And so fueled by one or maybe two martinis, I cold pitched her <laughs> at the bar. And uh, I was like, oh, we can do that. That's no problem. I, I was I think 28 or 29 at the time. And um, I, I guess I was convincing enough to, to have her hire me. And so she hired me. I think she paid me like $5,000 to write this business plan and marketing model that she raised $5 million on. And the rest is kind of history. Wow. And so, yeah. I mean, that took a lot of chutzpah, obviously, right? And, <laughs> and a lot of flop sweat. <laughs> <clears throat> but I mean, that's, that's really what drives success for sure. Did you feel that you were in any way an imposter at that time? Oh, I still feel like that every single day. Although Arlen Hamilton, who is a real um, inspiration to me, I saw her do a a talk the other day and she says that she's really trying to lean out of the conversation around imposter syndrome because she thinks that just by really having those conversations, we are continuing that path and it's in and of itself something that we should not be leaning into. So I'm really trying to not have those conversations anymore. But of course, I mean, it's hard not to feel that when you haven't done something before, you're taking a flying, leaping cannonball into something and you have no net. You're just like, holy shit, what am I doing? Absolutely. And obviously it ended up, there was a great outcome, right? She raised the, she raised the money and I'm sure she became a client for, for a long time. So was that the first client of your company that you then built the business on? It was after about a year of doing that work, um, other companies started coming to me, single entrepreneurs or companies that just didn't understand digital marketing. And this was 15 years ago when digital was just becoming a part of the conversation. Um, And the MBA that I had was with a focus in marketing. And I realized, as you well know, having your marketing background as well, that marketing is storytelling. It's really listening to and being able to share people's stories in on a specific platform in a very unique and engaging way. And that is kind of in my blood. I feel I'm a marketer at my core because I truly care about people, their narratives, and more importantly, how to translate that and get them out of their own way so that they can elevate their brands, which is how the name came about. Yeah, this is such a great name. I love it. Um, Would you mind sharing with us maybe one case study of a company that you helped launch from the beginning that was, you know, just a great, like perfect elevate your brand kind of client? Sure. Let's see, which client do I want to ask? There's, you know, we've worked with over 250 brands to date. Probably the one I'm the most proud of is a brand called Squishmallows, which if you're listening and you have children, I'm sorry. I know you probably have 50 of them in your bedroom right now, especially if you have young kids. 
Um, but this company came to us and they knew they were on the wholesale manufacturing side, but they knew they wanted to build the brand and had no idea how to do that. And so we were able to build this Squishmallow, which is a plush toy company from zero to 50 million in less than five years. Uh, they recently exited two years ago to private equity. And now they are in Costco and Walmart and Target and people just lose their minds because they're trying to collect the entire character cast, which we created from the ground up. So we created the names, the storylines, the social media presence, the content, the creative, the website, the influencer marketing, you name it, we did it. Um, and I'm really, really proud of that brand. It, um, it's really great for parents and kids, but what we found is that it had these really interesting uh, nuanced um, support for specifically kids that have uh, learning disabilities or emotional issues that they felt mm -hmm. a real connection with the characters and the stories um, for these animals and the tactileness of the product itself. And so I'm really, really proud that we were able to put something out that does really good in the world on so many levels. And it sounds like with this particular client that there was a little bit of a transmedia strategy with it uh, as opposed to just straight up marketing strategy. Well, they already had relationships with buyers on the wholesale side. So that was a really interesting, like, you know, startup line, you usually don't have those roots. So that was really helpful. And certainly we did a lot of uh, B2B for them as well. So it was B2B, B2C. It was every channel, every platform. We had a full PR team and push. Uh, it was a, a massive campaign and it was, you know, not cheap, let me tell you. Like, so I don't want anyone to think like, this is what any agency can do by blinking their eyes or waving a magic wand. It certainly took years to build this up, but I'm really proud again of that program. So if you could put kind of a, a button around what makes your company unique, given that, especially in Los Angeles and, and you're such an award-winning organization that's really crushed it with so many large companies and small companies. What would you say is kind of your secret sauce that really makes you stand out and makes you unique to uh, compared to other companies out there? Well, first of all, we're 100% diverse as a team. We've been a woman certified agency for seven years and we really lean in on that. And we think it brings a unique creative perspective. So we really value the diversity angle, but you know, sometimes that matters to the end client. Sometimes it doesn't. I would say the thing that really differentiates us is being what we call center brain, which means we're super inspired by creative and making things beautiful and interesting and dynamic, but we are really driven by the data side of the marketing world. So we have developed a proprietary operational process that allows us to baby step into the success of these brands. And frankly, allows us to understand who's going to be a great fit for us and who we're going to be a great fit for as well. Cause it has to be a, it's a trust factor, right? There's so much money, time, effort, energy that goes into these relationships. There's gotta be a really smart vetting process to make sure that you're aligned with the clients that you do take on and that you really feel like you could win for them. So we have these really great processes that we've developed. And then of course, listening software that's licensed and all of the things that we build in on the data side to make sure that when we pull these different levers, we're seeing the impact and we're making data-driven decisions even around the creative process. And then finally, I'd say, you know, being a holistic agency, a full service agency, I think especially in startup land, they can't afford to hire four different agencies, one that's doing their social organic, organic social, one that's doing their paid programs, one that's doing content, one that's building their sites, et cetera, et cetera. We have developed a, a way for them to kind of step into these different roles and responsibilities with us from marketing perspective, which allows us to really holistically build that life cycle marketing for them. 
I think that's brilliant. And clearly you're now extending those, those, those borders even further now mm. with this new venture. So just give us a, a slight taste on what that light bulb was one day when you're like, hey, maybe we can do more. <laughs> yeah, because that's what I need is more on my plate, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so we also were very lucky because of my legal and business background to work with private equity and venture firms to help them with their marketing and their portfolio company marketing. And one day on a call, one of the venture guys was like, Laurel, why are you not raising your own fund? This is insane. You have high net worth connections. You know exactly what to do with for these companies to make them successful. You see this deal flow all day long. You're super mission driven. You should really think about going out and raising a fund. And Fernanda, I felt like, and I told you this before, I felt like I got hit by a bolt of lightning and I just couldn't unsee it. And that was November of last year. We launched Fabric Ventures in April, April, May-ish. April, April, May, June, July. No, no, sorry, June. And we're about 16 weeks in right now. I know that you like evergreen content, but just to give people like a, a point in time. So we're about 16 weeks into fundraising right now and really nervous and excited. And uh, I feel like I'm re rebirthing something totally new, which is a scary and very hyper creative place to be. And I'm really, really excited about the future. So for those people that don't really understand how those pieces are kind of an integral part of perhaps a fund, do you want to talk a little bit about why having access to deal flow, operational expertise, uh, mission-driven, why all those boxes and being able to check those boxes really is a huge leg up? Well, first of all, we believe that venture is really kind of broken right now. And you and I have had conversations about this. And so coming at, coming into venture from the mission side, which um, for those of you that don't know, less than 2% of venture capital dollars go to diverse candidates. So BIPOC, queer, and women, it is typically a very pale male and stale industry led by, you know, bros in the finance and investment banking worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and so the whole structure of venture, the whole history of venture has been kind of stacked against diverse candidates. Um, and not just that, but I truly believe that people who don't have have operator experience don't understand how to optimize something like a venture opportunity. So we're coming into this with an operator perspective, which is already very unique, with a mission-driven perspective, which is also, I think, it's evolving. I think we see, we're seeing a lot more um, venture organizations focus on underrepresented founders. Uh, but the critical piece for us and the big differentiator that people, our LPs and companies are really excited about with us is that we're actually folding the marketing conversation into the venture dialogue, meaning we're using the software on the agency side to vet the numbers of the portfolio companies that we will potentially invest in. It'll also allow us to see how far they are from their direct and aspirational competitors in the space. As I mentioned before, that's part of our process on the marketing side, which means, Fernanda, that we will be able to see if our check will meaningfully close that gap, which mm -hmm. is a pretty unique perspective, not to mention the fact that we're then doing a discount model into the agency, not required, of course, but suggested because we know these companies and these industries so well, we then have a vested interest in making these companies winners. So we're kind of doubling down on our bet and using our expertise on the operating marketing side of the universe to, we think, change the face of venture. 
Well, you're definitely creating a new model. And um, I think that that's so exciting and it's so future forward because I do agree with you a thousand percent that, you know, the days of just writing checks and having advisors who provide some sideline advice is deficient. And that's why mm-hmm. the failure rate at the VC level has always, you know, been fairly significant. And I think what you're doing is so smart because you will have direct access and also influence on how these companies actually are presented and where and how the money can best be invested in order to really further their revenue, I would presume. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's really exciting. I mean, when you think about it, like, let's just say you have 10 companies in historical venture, eight of those companies are going to fold, one will get bought, and you'll make a little return and one will carry the entire fund. If mm-hmm. that was a typical, comp- like, if that was a my model for my agency, we'd be we'd be a failure. Like, right. it just doesn't make sense to me. So I kind of went into this the same way I went into the agency because I didn't have that background or experience either. And I was like, well, I don't really know what this is supposed to be, but this is how I'm putting it together. So let me give you an, uh, uh, for instance. So there's a founder who I know who has been very fortunate to receive a lot of grant money. And some of that grant money has been fairly sizable and has been directed towards marketing and PR. And what she's doing, I think is, is very groundbreaking. And she asked me the other day, I'm a little uncertain as to how to best invest these funds on the marketing and PR side in order to get the biggest bang for the buck. And I think it's a very logical question. Oftentimes founders don't think about it because you're always kind of in this mode of thinking, I got to raise more money, I need more money. But then when you get the funds, it's like, okay, how do I even if it's 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000, 200, or a million, how do I maximize that investment so that I get the most back? And obviously marketing is a big lever. And so I'm just wondering if you could speak to that. Well, I think it's important to understand your baselines and then again, your competitive set in the marketplace. When clients come to us and ask us that question, like how do we get more bang for our buck? Our answer is usually very content driven. This is, of course, assuming that the brand is built up to a certain point, right? Again, if we backtrack and we have to talk about branding or a rebrand or they're launching brand new into the market, it's a very different conversation than if they're 6, 12, 18 months in or a couple years in and they're just looking to elevate. So number one, I would say, make sure that you have all your baselines in each of your channels. So you know what you're starting from in terms of site traffic, conversion to database, you know, what are the KPIs that you're tracking towards historically that have shown uh, that that you're looking at on a month over month basis. Make sure you have at least three to six months of back data for that, right? So that we can see what channels are working and what aren't. Are they growing? Are they shrinking? Again, what are those KPIs? And then if they're in a place where they are established enough and they are looking to spend a little bit more money and get the biggest bang for their buck, um, especially right now where we're having these conversations around privacy with all of the iOS updates and a cookie-less environment, advertising just isn't delivering in the same way that it has, has been historically. So that's why the content conversation, specifically blog and blog content, becomes a really important um, dialogue. It feeds the marketing machine in a different way, and it should be focused from an SEO perspective to 
again, conquest that traffic from direct and aspirational competitors in the space. So typically when people are like, how do we get more bang for less buck? I'm like, let's do a shoot a palooza. Let's shoot a shit ton of content. Make sure that it's optimized for SEO for search, right? Put, mm-hmm. Push it out through all of your channels. So it's feeding the overarching machine, but making sure that it lives on YouTube and then on your website so that you're playing nice with the two largest search engines of Google and YouTube. Um, and then on top of that, tr- trying out new advertising channels, uh, potentially for your brand, what, something like a content aggregation platform, like an Outbrainer or Taboola. So that's a very specific and detailed answer to the, how do we get less, more bang for less buck conversation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nuance and really answering that, but that's typically how we would approach it. So let's talk a little bit about your investment thesis and who your target uh, founder would be, what kind of companies you'd be interested in investing in and and why? We are only investing in uh, BIPOC, queer and women founders. Again, Mm -hmm. really leaning into the mission driven side of the business, which is exactly who we are on the agency side. In fact, that's really so much of the reason behind why I'm taking this next leap. Like you said, I could sit pretty and be very comfortable in my job currently, but I believe that fabric will allow us to have more of a national and eventually global impact in how we are shifting these conversations and building more equity and more parity in the startup ecosystem. So that is the mission side of it. Uh, In terms of actual companies we're investing in, it's seed and pre-seed. Our background or my background is is CPG mostly. So beauty, lifestyle, fashion, retail, kids and toys, you know, anything in the retail consumer, food, beverage, all that space. My principal, uh, Jahara Tariq, who is a black woman in venture, we thought was, it was really important to have her front and center. Her background is all a uh, future of healthcare, future of workspace. So we're also leading in, in that category as well. So again, leaving it broad enough, but most of it is consumerized tech. And what has been your experience so far in the market, talking to various investors around the fund? Any observations? I will tell you, it's been interesting speaking to women and how they invest and have conversations around investment versus how men have these same conversations. Please Um, do tell, do tell. (laughs) I just think that they have a tendency to be a little more fearful, um, especially if they're the breadwinner or the purse holder and they're in charge of making these decisions. It's been, it's taken a lot more time to get to yeses from some of my uh, women investors and women LPs. That's not all the case across the board. Like we've got um, Jesse Draper is an LP in the fund and she also runs a fund. So she kind of knows the universe We're LPs in her fund as well. So there's been a, a great little um, group of women who uh, already are super mission aligned and understand the finance um, world, the, the investment world. That's been really awesome. Uh, the other thing that's been really interesting is, of course, fundraising in this macro environment, right? It's just been mm-hmm. a bizarre, bizarre time. Um, but we have had still really great conversations, great feedback. The truth is, and I just heard this uh, a couple weeks ago, venture vintages that launch in uh, bear economies historically return better than those that launch in uh, more bull economies, which is so mm-hmm. interesting. I have yeah. heard that before, but it yeah. makes sense because we've, we've got to be just as scrappy, you know, more scrappy, just as the companies that uh, receive the capital have to be scrappier. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, founders who have the balls, so to speak, um, or the boobs 
to <laughs> to launch. I call, it bi- I call it big O of energy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. That's better. Yeah. Um, who have the courage to do so during bad economic times really says something about the self-confidence and the determination of that founder. So I think there's a psychological perspective there. You're not going to go into this kind of process during a market like this if if you don't really have your act together. That's true. Um, but you know the truth is, is like I, I, I've said this for years. I especially say this when I'm speaking to some of my nonprofit, like all of some of my nonprofit groups. Um, everybody's faking it. Like everybody. I don't care mm-hmm. how successful, how big shot you are. Everyone's faking it every single day. So. You know, I think that there's a lot of imposter syndrome going around in the finance world, specifically as it relates to women founders. And I would just encourage anyone listening in, just just go for it. I mean, I'm doing it and I know not I knew nothing about venture really other than being an investor myself and obviously being an operator, but I'm creating my own path forward and so can anyone. And so what's the outlook for Fabric VC? Now you're, you've, launched, uh, you've launched your capital raise. Can you just update us on where things stand? We're about 12 or 13 weeks in the market. Uh, it's summer now, so I don't know when the podcast is going to launch, but uh, it is summer and most people are on vacation. So we, I, you know, having not been in this world, didn't realize that most people uh, who would be our LPs are overseas right now. So what we're doing is initiating conversations with our core database of contacts who are LPs, so our high mm-hmm. network community. And then at the same time, we are building our marketing machine so that when we, uh, when fall comes, we are ready for a super, super hard uh, raise push. Um, it's very different than being an operator where you, you push really hard on something and you get shit done. This is mm-hmm. definitely not that it's very, very relationship driven. And it's been a lesson for me, honestly, to have more patience and to be kinder to myself in this process. Uh, and to know that I just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and it's going to happen. Um, we've got about 3 million uh, soft circled currently. We've got a bunch of LP docs out. So it's still in process. Things are happening, but I want to make sure that we are putting our best foot forward. So we're, we don't have a clock running until we do our first closing call capital. So I'm giving us ourselves a little bit of grace and space, which it was so funny when people told me like, oh, it takes six to 18 months to raise the fund one at least. And I was like, yeah, right. I could do that so much faster. (laughs) (laughs) I am now realizing the, uh, not the error of my ways, but the, um, a little bit of hubris, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I was like, oh, I'm, I'm an operator. I know how to do this shit. Um, but the truth is, is that every industry is so very different and, and it's all about timing. So I am learning as I go and giving myself that grace and space right now, but we are, we're getting great response. People are super excited. There's a lot of companies that are being sold right now that our, our friends have been running. So when you, it's a great time to approach an LP if they are, have recently taken chips off the table, it's exactly mm-hmm. the right time. So right. we're having some really good conversations. So when you talk about, I'm just kind of curious, when you talk about getting your marketing machine running, given that you're a marketing expert, what does that look like? Mm, Great question. Making sure all of our social channels are live and active, growing those channels and those networks, um, going out into the world, IRL, I know it's like, wow, it's it's happening all over again. (laughs) Um, So I'm like, I'm actually like, you know, networking into groups that I've been a part of for, for years and years, but never really had this same kind of ask. So for example, Los Angeles Venture Association, Female Founder Collective, Women Founders Network, it's a very different 
conversation I'm having now in those in those networks. Um, building out our drip campaigns. So this and the website hasn't launched yet. So we're doing all of that right now. Building our all of our content, which you've been so great in giving us feedback on, Fernanda. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Um, and you know, then building out our LP database and the the touches. So just mm -hmm. like in digital marketing, it takes multiple touches to reach out to your audiences or to your LP uh, base. So I'm trying to build out right now, or I'm building out right now. Um, what those touch points generally should look like so that uh, my team and I have an easier time, hopefully shortening that time from first point of contact to close of LP. And so there's a lot happening. <laughs> yeah, no, it's certainly you're going to have a busy summer. And if you could wave a, a magic wand, what would your perfect and ideal LP look like? I love this question. I asked this question on my podcast too. It's so funny. <laughs> if I could wave a magic wand, my ideal LP is someone, woman or male, or non-binary, uh, who is super mission-driven and understands that investing in uh, the founders that we are going to be investing in isn't a charity, right? Jesse Draper actually had a whole article that went viral in the same conversation. It's not a charity. And in fact, there are so many statistics out there that show that these founders haven't received capital, but the ones that do, again, historically outperform and return better uh, on the investment. So it would be an investor who understands that this is not a charity, that they are going to make great returns, that believes in the marketing play in uh, as it relates to the finance and investing world, and who can write a big fat check. <laughs> <laughs> again and again, I would imagine. Again and again, yes. Fund one, fund two, fund eight, you know, right. God willing. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Well, I, uh, I'd like to also now ask you some questions related to the name of the show, which is Startup Hacks, how to save time, money, and gain a competitive edge when bootstrapping your business. So as a professional woman and as a founder, serial founder now, what would you say are three things that you would like to share with founders that you found saved you time? saved you money and or perhaps really helped you gain a competitive edge early days when you were starting out and you didn't have a lot of money because quite frankly once you're funded a lot of these problems go away but the discipline on how to really maintain that competitive edge and how to be nimble is is a need that really follows us for the life cycle of our business so what would totally. you suggest to to founders based on your experience so for me, it was net, it's networking, right? It's about my building out those networks. That is everything to me. And then follow-up, which I think there's a lack of in the business world in general. So uh, you know, this is my model. I do this with, I've done this with you multiple times now. I have this thing I call orbiting the universe. So in the prior meeting, if I'm with someone who I either really like and want to spend time with, or who I believe I can help or want to do business with, I will always put our next meeting on in the prior meeting. Whether you have to move that meeting or cancel and reschedule, whatever that looks like, that's fine. But at least then you always have a touch point. And I don't think that founders or uh, business owners really think about um, being on someone's calendar as branding, but it kind of is. So even if we end up not talking, if you see that Elevate My Brand is on your calendar, um, you know, month one, month three, month six, month nine, I'm building in these touch points of recognition and visibility to you that are totally subconscious. 
Um, and we know that it can take up to 16 touch points for someone to know, like, and trust your brand. So creating that cyclical communication is really important and will save you time in the long run. I can't tell you how many times people have come back to me five, six, 10 years later. And they're like, oh my gosh, I was totally in your email marketing system. And I just got an email. I hadn't thought you in years, but I realized I need you now. It's just been amazing. Um, in creating that machine. So number one, uh, uh, orbiting each other's universe. Number mm -hmm. two, motivation is not consistent, right? Like we are humans. And I think we forget that, especially when you're hustling and when you're young and you're really, really hungry, but it's not consistent. So what I would do, because I would get really excited and energized about my business at like, you know, 11 o'clock, one in the morning, <laughs> three in the morning, you know, when I was in my early, early twenties and thirties. Yeah. Um, and so what I would do is I would pre-send all of my emails. So I would, if I would get a spark of excitement about the company and I wanted to like, you know, hustle on BD, I would pre-send all of the emails for, you know, 7.32 the next morning. So people thought I was up and active. I was probably sleeping at that point, if I'm being totally honest. So again, just like setting yourself up for success by creating those operational efficiencies. Can I stop you right there for a second? Yeah, for sure. You, I have so many. <laughs> no, I want to hear them all. Uh, when you say pre-send your, your emails, because I have to say this has been one of my, I love to work in the middle of the night. That's where I find yep. I do my best work. Yep. And uh, oftentimes I'll just send emails at three in the morning and people will think I'm nuts. But um, I looked for a long time, like what would be the best software program or no code software in order to manage that? And I'm just curious what you just on a very practical level, what you like to work with. I mean, I just use Outlook. Outlook has the send later feature. It's that mm -hmm. simple. Mm -hmm. so, does, uh, mm -hmm. so does Gmail, I believe. So I don't Got actually it. even use a software to do that. Although we do use a software called Pipeline for business development and you can do it through that too. But I mean, yeah. you, don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to reinvent the wheel or make it more complicated than it has to be. Just hustle and get them out, get them scheduled. All right. So what's number three for you? Oh gosh, where do I want to go with this one? Okay, I think that the third one would probably be build your database early and often. So mm -hmm. your database, whether you're selling a product or a service, is like money on the table that you might be leaving there. So again, I'm probably dating myself, but early days in my company, you would come home from an event with a stack of business cards and you'd have to translate that into a database. But I can't, I'm sure that this is happening now and I'm sure that those listening in may be uh, at fault for this, but building that database even if it's just into an Excel spreadsheet and using it consistently is absolutely key. Again, creating that visibility and awareness about you and your brand. You know, you never know who's going to make an introduction, the timing of someone needing your product or service. Um, so build in these efficiencies and database is everything and use mm -hmm. it, right? It's not just about building it, do the follow through, build a drip campaign, make sure that they're folded into like some sort of MailChimp email marketing system where they're getting updates on a monthly basis, at least make sure that you are kind of ubiquitous. And that's really what great marketing is not in an offensive way. Obviously you don't want to be over the top and in someone's inbox every few days or every day. Um, but I think people underestimate the value of databases. So I'm going to throw this question out there right now. If you are starting out as a founder in terms of kind of gaining a competitive edge and you have limited money and you're bootstrapping and you get a chunk of money and let's say you've allocated, you have $100,000 in a marketing budget and there's three doors. Behind door A, you can use those funds to hire someone. Door B, 
you hire a company to, you know, do some social media marketing for you with those funds and and maybe buy some ads and, and use it for PR, et cetera. Or C, what else would you do? With those funds. <laughs> I'm glad you gave me C as an open <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to pick door D. I'm going to make my own door and I'm going to yeah. kick it down. I would probably pick door C. And what I would do is work with a small agency, not like unlike Elevate My Brand, to help develop a strategy approach and again, those baselines. Usually if you're in that early stage as a startup, you actually don't have a holistic perspective on what you actually need to be successful because you're doing the spray and pray model. You're posting here and there and you maybe spend a little bit on ads or you're boosting posts. You've done some of your branding work, but it might not be consistent across all of your channels. Your website might not be optimized. There's just so many different pieces to the marketing pie. I would recommend spending, I mean, and it's not crazy expensive. I mean, our first, our, we, we do typically two roadmap, two mind maps digitally and a roadmap with our clients. And I think it's less than 10K all in for that foundational piece. And then usually those companies will work with us to then execute on it. But at that point, you have a very clear understanding of who you are, every single marketing channel, where you are in the perspective of your market. And then you can make a smart decision on, do I need to hire someone and have all of that operational overhead, uh, tax issues and all of that? Or does it make more sense to work with an outside consultant that I can pay a little bit less and maybe have a fuller team? Or, you know, depending on what the data comes back on that roadmap process, maybe I just need to do a hard content push. Again, it's it's too hard to generically answer that, but foundation is everything and I've had very few companies that have come to us that really understand holistically where they lie in their verticals. I think that's really, really important first. But then I would probably hire, I would either hire an agency or I would hire a second in command or someone under me because my time would be best used doing, you know, fundraising or whatever. And you want to make sure you're using your time super valuably. My, my first hire was the best decision I ever made in my life. And who was that? It was a, a part-time, um, executive assistant. Mm -hmm. And I told her that she could make the role anything she wanted it to be. And she ended up wanting to be um, director of operations. And three years later, she, that's exactly where she was. Mm -hmm. I was like, I was hitting my wall in terms of what I was able to do and scheduling and actually getting the work done. She came in and helped with some of that. Then she started doing some of the work. We hired more people, et cetera, et cetera. And then she was able to make the role her own. So I think hiring part-time is can be challenging, especially in this market. Luckily, at the time, she just graduated college and was living at home. And so she had more flexibility, but there are definitely diamonds in the rough there. And I think there's, it's really great when you can give someone the ability to be upwardly mobile within your company. And it's a huge opportunity for a young, smart person. Totally. So if they're smart (laughs) (laughs) and they know how to, they know how to play the game. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions and then we'll sign off. So under the category of time management and self-care, which are two critical components, I think, to be a successful founder, are there any pieces of advice that you'd give to any founders out there who perhaps haven't really managed their time well or don't take time to take care of themselves? Hire an assistant. Again, even if it's part-time, even if it's virtual, think about what your hourly rate is compared to what that person that you'd be paying for that person. I think that the the cost benefit analysis would blow your mind. I mean, we, we use a system called harvest to time track 
So I would suggest using a system like that to see how much of your time is actually being spent in admin tasks that maybe aren't the best and highest use of your time. So I, I would say in terms of time management, hiring an EA as quickly as possible or a virtual assistant is so, 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 so critical and important. And then self-care, like you said, I have a really a pretty strict morning routine. I wake up, I chug a glass of water that's on the side of my bed to rehydrate. I write in my gratitude journal. I work out at least five days a week. And I really try not, you know, engage in business activities until I've done most of those things. Obviously mm-hmm. someday and coffee, coffee, of course. Oh my gosh, I need coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and a little coffee, kiss my husband, cuddle with the puppies and then on to the day. I think setting a foundation for your day that's positive and um, exciting and full of love and energy is really, really important because being an entrepreneur is really friggin' hard. And then of course, learning how to say no, like I was supposed to be at lunch today and I had a 14 hour day yesterday. And I just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say no. And there's a lot of power in that word. Absolutely. Absolutely. And on that note, I'm going to um, conclude our chat today. And it was so great connecting with you, Laurel. I'm so excited about the work that you're doing. It's going to help a lot of women and hopefully also set a new standard for a new way of developing a fund. I love it. Thank you so much for giving us some visibility here and for your feedback, Fernanda. You've been absolutely instrumental. If our listeners now would like to learn more about either of your companies, your marketing company or now Fabric, uh, where should they go to connect with you and learn more? Absolutely. Uh, ElevateMyBrand.com. Of course, on all of the socials, LinkedIn, et cetera. And then for Fabric, FabricVC.com. Uh, site should be launching very shortly, but they can sign up there to get folded into our news events and updates. We've got a lot coming down the pipe, so hope they'll sign up. Thank you so much. Tune in next week for more episodes of Startup Hacks. We have another great show you won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that will save you time and money when building your business. This podcast is brought to you by We Global Studios, the first startup innovation studio and digital do-it-yourself startup platform for women entrepreneurs around the world. For more information on our guests, this podcast, and many other female founder programs, please visit weglobalstudios.com. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and we will see you next week.